Good morning and welcome to Calvary Chapel. If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Ephesians chapter 2. And let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can meet with you. We thank you that you've given us this appointed time. And it's you that we come to know. It's you that we come to hear. And we ask that you would change us, you would transform us, that you would speak to our hearts tenderly, mercifully, and Lord, let us experience your mercy and grace this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. This will be a two-part series. We're going to be looking at God's saving grace. Let's read our text today. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and of the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too, all formerly, lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Paul continues to explain God's gracious exaltation of the Christian with Christ. It was in chapter 1 that Paul had been viewing the incredible blessings of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. From Paul's mountaintop experience, he now turns and looks into Death Valley. What a contrast. One place is on the top of the world, the other at the bottom of the world. One place is perpetually cool, the other is restlessly hot. From Death Valley, you can only look up to the rest of the world. We'll look again. So Paul begins at the very bottom of Death Valley. Look at verse 1. And it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. This is an absolute statement. It doesn't mean that you were merely in danger of death, but that you were in the state of real, present death. Death is not a figure of speech. No, Paul means you're absolutely dead. Why? Because Paul's primarily talking to Gentiles in this verse, but he includes his fellow Jews. See, this state of spiritual death, it's universal. It's not describing some self-indulgent, drugged-out society, but all of humanity, from the top, to the bottom. Every person is dead apart from Christ. The bottom line here is, Paul says, dead 
with no exceptions. Paul moves to a description of a horrible spiritual condition that humanity faces. It's death and slavery and condemnation. This plight results from a pervasive and powerful influence of evil, which impacts people in three different ways. See, those who are spiritually dead are under the controlling influences of the world and the devil and the flesh. After Jesus had called a certain man to follow him, the man asked permission to bury his father. A figure of speech that meant waiting until his father died to receive the inheritance, indicating the condition of the spiritual deadness and the bringing both of death together. Jesus responded, he said, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. See, the man's concern was, was not for his father, who was likely, not likely dead, I should say, but for the things of this physical world. He wanted to take care of his physical welfare first and showed no genuine desire for the spiritual. Look again at that verse 1 in that beginning, what we call the A part, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before you were saved, you were like any other person who was apart from God. Dead in the trespasses and sins. We're not dead because we have committed sin, but because we were in sin. We were born in sin. We have that inherited sin nature. In fact, he does not become a liar when he tells a lie. He tells a lie because he is a liar. He does not become a thief when he steals. He steals because he is a thief. And so on, with murder and adultery and covetousness and every other sin. Committing sinful acts does not make us sinners. We commit sinful acts because we are sinners. See, Jesus confirmed that when he said in Matthew twelve thirty-five, the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. In Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those who defile it. For all out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, and slanders. The idea behind the word trespasses is that we have crossed that line challenging God's boundaries. Even though we don't think of it that way, that's what we're doing. We're challenging God. Now, the idea behind the word sins is that we have missed the mark. And that perfect standard is really Jesus Christ. It's God. Scripture tells us elsewhere, be holy as I'm holy. Romans 3.23 says, for we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Notice the word all. Every single person, man, woman, child, every person. There is no exception. Romans 1, 21, notice, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God 
or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, all men are apart from God and are sinful. But that doesn't mean that every person is equally corrupt and wicked. No, if you had 20 corpses on a battlefield, and there might be many different stages of decay, but everyone is uniformly dead. Death manifests itself in many different forms and degrees, but death itself has no degrees. Sin also has many different forms and degrees, but the state of sin itself has no degrees. Sin is sin. Sin is sinful. And it's our sins that separate us from a holy God. See, not all men are as evil as they could be, but all fail to measure up to that perfect standard that we see in Jesus Christ. Well, again, notice that next phrase, verse 2, in which he formerly walked. The dead man feels comfortable in his coffin, but if he were to be made alive again, he would instantly feel suffocated and uncomfortable. There would be a strong urge to escape that coffin and leave it behind. In the same way, when you were spiritually dead, you felt comfortable in your trespasses and your sins. But having come to a new life, we, we feel we must escape that coffin and leave it behind. See, we know that now what sin is, we know the uncomfortableness of it. And we don't want to live or waller in it. When we sin now, we know we sin. And we don't enjoy the sin the way we used to. Because now we're in Christ. Look again according to the course of this world. Now the Greek word behind the word world is cosmos. It literally means that which is ordered or arranged. It is from that word we get our word cosmetics from cosmos. Well, again, the world God created was good. It was perfect. In fact, Genesis chapter 1 verse 31 says this, God saw all that he had made. Behold, it was very good. And there was an evening and there was a morning and the sixth day. God created this world with a purpose. Look at Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. And day to day it pours forth the speech, and at night to night it reveals the knowledge. So, again, the heavens are declaring the glory is declaring the work of his hands. It pours forth speech. It is every night revealing the knowledge that there is a God. And going to Romans chapter 1, read it about verse 18 down. 
And you see, God's revealed himself through creation, just as this verse is saying, and every man is without excuse. The world has fallen, fallen into sin and rebellion against its creator. And as a result, it's come under the influence and the power of Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light and the glory of God, of Christ, who is the image of God. Again in verse 2, notice again it says, according to the prince of the power of the air. See, Satan is pictured here as the ruler of the demons and all agencies of evil. He's the man. He's the head man. Well, he's a fallen angel. Jesus called him the prince of this world. In Ephesians chapter 6, this is for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. John twelve thirty one. notice again, it says, Now judgment is upon this world, and now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Amen. Verse 2 again, it says, and of the Spirit, that is the working in the sons of the disobedience. Ephesians 5 warns us, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Strong words, let no one deceive you. How many times have you been deceived? How many times have you been naive, bought into something, did something you never should have done? I think every one of us at some point. We need to go through this life with open eyes. We need to recognize there is an enemy. He's like a roaring lion looking for whom he may devour. And that's us. He wants us. But the scripture reminds us, greater is he who is in me than in the world. I have that assurance, that confidence, as I keep my eyes upon the author and the finisher of my faith. We'll jump down to verse 3 in our text. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. First John 2.16 says this, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. All sin goes back to one of these areas. In fact, each one of us are tempted in all three of these areas and each one of us when we sin are giving in to one of these areas in our life. You know that this Ephesians here verses 1 through 3 it's, it's almost like a parallel 
to Romans chapters 1 through 3, where we saw that all man is lost and his sinful condition. In fact, all of sin falls short of the glory, and the wages of sin is death, and it parallels that. But look at verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, and God's mercy is rich and it's overbounding without measure, unlimited in fact. We're taken from death to life the moment we believe and trust in Jesus Christ. Why? Because of the great love with which he loves us. See, it was while man was dead in his trespasses and sins, God was rich in his mercy. He intervened in the destiny of man. He interrupted the doom and the death and judgment. And God simply had mercy upon us. I cherish and love those two words, but God. In the beginning of verse 4, they reveal the wonderful heart of a wonderful God and Savior. See, he's the initiator. He's the provider of our hope. And the power of salvation. His great desire is, is to be reconciled with all of his creation. All of his creatures. And that we would be made in his own image. And for his glory. See, the rebellion, the rejection... It's on man's side. But because he was rich in mercy toward us, he had such a great love for us. He provided a way, the way, for us to return to him. And I'm so thankful that God is full of mercy. God is love and he is full of love. Romans chapter 5 expands on this. Let me show you. Look at verse 6. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for every single person in this world. That those who would believe in him, put their hope and trust in him, could have everlasting life. But see, we were helpless. And he would provide the help. Look at verse 8. But God demonstrated his love toward us in while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he demonstrated his love toward us, the helpless, the hopeless, that our hope would be in him. Look down again in Romans 5 verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. In fact, when we're baptized, we're identifying with his death and burial and being raised from the grave in the newness of life. Look back, though, to our text in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace, you have been saved. 
there's many kinds of life. There's vegetable life, animal life, mental life, moral life, spiritual life. A being might be alive in one sense, but dead in another. To be spiritually dead does not mean that we're physically dead, but socially dead or psychologically dead. Yet is a real death. And a dead death, nonetheless. The most vital part of man's personality, the spirit, and is dead to the most important factors of life, God. Time and time again we cross that line, challenging God's boundaries as if we were shaking our fist and hands at him. No different, we were challenging him. But God loved us, even though we were in sin. He didn't want to wait until we got our act together or became more lovable. He loved us even when we're dead in our trespasses, providing nothing that was lovable to him. He just chose to set his love upon you and me. I like John 5, verse 24. Notice it begins, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. The scripture is full of this death and life. When a person comes to know and trust in Jesus Christ, when Jesus knocks at the door, in the book of Revelation, he says he stands at the door and knocks. If anyone opens the door to him, he will come in and sup with him. That's a call to salvation. Jesus is knocking at your door. He knocked at my door. The question is, will we open our hearts to him? Will we acknowledge that we are sinners and we're in need of a savior? And we understand that he died for us. Look at John 11, verse 44. And the man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. We were bound hand and foot in the wrappings of death and sin. But when we were raised, God unbinds us. He demands that Satan will let us go. We can now walk in the newness of life. We now can walk with God. See, a living, living person cannot function while he's wrapped in his trappings of death. That's why in Philippians 3.20, we're assured. Paul says, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, our ultimate home is in heaven. 
Jesus said, I'd go and prepare a place for you. If it's not so, I wouldn't have told you. He's coming back. The believers are the bride of Christ. He's coming for us to take us away to a place where there is no sin and no pain and no sorrow and no temptation and no death. Well, 1 Peter 1, four talks about we will obtain inheritance. That inheritance, he says, is imperishable. It's undefiled. It will not fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. As if your name is written on this inheritance. In fact, look at verse 7 in our text today. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, when we come to Christ, we were an unbeliever, we were born again or regenerated, as the scripture says. We don't have all of our act together. We just recognize we need a savior. We don't know all things. There's an illustration of an illiterate couple that had just been saved. And they met with a group of believers who all dressed alike. The men wore red shirts while engaged in certain project. The women made one for her husband, and he came home after the meeting, however, with a look of disappointment on his face because of the others. Had a message printed on their shirts, but he did not. His wife, undaunted by her inability to read, sewed three words on the shirt which he had copied from a sign in a store window across the street. He wore it to the next meeting and came home bubbling with joy. And he said all the men really liked the inscription because it so aptly described the wonderful change that they had seen in his life. It turned out that his wife had written the words under new management. See, this brother knew he was different. And so did everyone around him. And that's what happens when we turn our lives over to the grace of God. We're under new management. Jesus is our master. He's our Lord. And he's Savior. But the question is, is he your master? Is he your Lord? Is he your savior? We need to recognize that we were dead in our sins, separated from God. And Jesus Christ died for you and me upon the cross. Why, we were helpless. He paid the price. And by believing in Jesus and what Jesus has done for you and me, we can have eternal life. And we will be under new management. Please stand with me. Father, thank you 
for this encouraging, challenging, and yet refreshing text that we were helpless, we were hopeless, but God, you gave us hope. You gave us reason to live. And we thank you for what you've done. And we thank you that we are your workmanship and you will finish the work in each of us. God, we praise you. We love you. We adore you. And God, thank you that you will keep us until that day that you come for us. In Jesus' name, amen.